The following is an extended conversation with Dan Anderson from our teamwork episode. We hear his thoughts on Ted Lasso and more about how he applies principles from building thinking classrooms into his practice. Welcome, I'm Dave. I'm John. And this is Teaching Like Ted Lasso. We'd like to welcome Dan Anderson to the podcast. He is an exciting hockey coach and high school teacher in New York. Dan, would you please introduce yourself a little bit to uh, to our audience? Sure. Thanks for having me, John. I'm a math and computer science teacher. I've been teaching for 18, 19 years, something like that. And I've been coaching for about 20, uh, coaching hockey at different levels for about 20 years. Uh, Now I'm just coaching my kids. But that's multiple teams. Two teams right now and three teams starting soon. All three kids play hockey at different levels. It's really, really fun, like diversion to my life. So if you got an offer to go coach in a different country, a different sport? A good question. Different country, different sport. Okay, so sports, I don't, I, I'd, I'd have to start with something I knew. I feel like that really would help. I, unlike Ted Lasso, who went right from football to football, I feel like it'd be a really tough transition. So I coached uh, JV baseball. My first teaching job, which was at a prep school, and I had played baseball, but just a little bit, and that was that was difficult. But I think that's I, I think my second sport would probably be mountain biking. I do I do mountain bike here and there. I used to mountain bike a little bit more. I feel like in some ways that the coaching wouldn't be as as different. It's not like a team sport, so my burden would be a little bit less. <laughs> it's a little bit easier there. That prep school I worked at did have a mountain biking team. That's how I learned how to mountain bike. Um, oh wow. Which was really fun. Yeah. And what country? Oh, geez. Uh, oh. Somewhere in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere in Europe for sure. Where there's mountains. Yeah, where there's mountains. <laughs> yeah, the trails. Oh, that's fair. All right. So uh, you're a uh, bit that doesn't require you to be familiar with the show to be on, but it sounds like you're you're familiar a bit with the show. Um, and we're talking about uh, teamwork. So what kind of what applications do you see or what kind of instances of teamwork do you notice in the show so the show is a uh, so by the way just to get it out of the way i i really i watched the whole first season and i watched half the second season i sort of stopped the second season i don't know why i think i like shows that have a little bit more conflict although i've been told that there's more conflict at the end of the second season what i see a lot is like the, the commonalities between the show and coaching and teamwork and sort of the classroom is it really helps to have a diversity in a, in a locker room. So when you're coaching, you want different style players. You want different personalities. You want different age, in this case, for pros. You want the sort of the young rookie guy. You want the sort of the, the stoic leader. You want the, the skill guy, like a Jamie Tart, because that just makes the team so much stronger. I talk about this with my kids when I'm coaching. Not everybody needs to be a scorer. We don't need to have someone that can put it in three goals a game because you wouldn't have a team if it was everyone was trying to score three goals a game. It just wouldn't work. They wouldn't be passing each other. They wouldn't be moving around the puck. So I I see that strength in soccer and in hockey and almost every team sport that you need to have a wide variety of experiences and people in the room to make a great team. And basketball, a good example of basketball, you wouldn't have a very good team if you had five point guards or five forwards or whatever it is. Um, Different skills are super important. And so that really helps nicely. That really maps nicely to the classroom where 
having a different variety of experiences in a classroom. You have some students that are more comfortable with algebra. You might have some students that are more comfortable with problem solving and they just like to try different things. You might have some students that are way more creative. You might have some students that have memorized the little smaller stuff and you want to use all those different skills at the same time. You want to use those skills that everybody walks in the room with um, so that you have a stronger classroom. So there's some really nice commonalities there that I think fit between team sports and, and classroom and teaching. Yeah, I like that. And it's not immediately obvious. Like if we pulled teachers, they might think that they wanted an entire classroom full of that ideal student or that dream student. But um, I love the diversity of, it, of of your vision there. Our other guest on this episode, uh, Joy Oslin, she'll talk about how many different ways there are to be smart in math. So that's nice if you're thinking about it from the kind of coaching connection about that, that's really going to enable you to do a lot more. Um, yeah. And if you can value all those experiences, it's um, so I feel like a lot of times in a classroom, if, if it's not a well-functioning classroom, the kid is there and they're writing the material down in a notebook. And it's a really like a solitary experience where they sort of have the knowledge and they're writing it down in their notebook or they're trying the problem by themselves. They have the knowledge and if they have it or they don't, they're not sharing that with other people. So it can be way one way to open classrooms up is to have them talking to each other and help each other out and where they're looking at each other first instead of looking at the teacher as an expert. So it, it can be really, really helpful to have them think of a bigger picture. Cause like one of that, one way that analogy breaks down is like a team, <laughs> a team has one goal. They want to win the, win the game. And in a classroom, you have that sort of goal. Like the teacher has a goal that they want to have everybody learn the material. That's sort of like your win. But the students themselves have different goals. They could, so if, if student A walks out of that room and they've, won, they've learned the material, they sort of won and they're, they're sort of happy. But that's not true in like a, a sports game where like it can be true. You have like a Jamie, like a Jamie Tart type guy who gets three goals and they lose 4-3 <laughs> and he's, he's fine. He's happy. So maybe there is it's more of that connection than I, I first gave it. <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to think through that a bit too. But it's definitely true, right? Students come in looking, kind of looking for different things, expecting different things from, from the classroom. All right. So that, I think, connects really well to what made us wonder about if we could talk to you for this episode um, was you gave a recent um, presentation at NCTM, Standing Room Only, Use Vertical Whiteboards to Transform How Students Interact with Each Other. I thought it was a great pitch because you ask in your description, do you want a classroom buzzing with student math discussion day after day? And I'm thinking, yes, yes, I do. You know, do you want your students to look to one another for support before they look to the teacher? Yes, please. Can you talk us through the presentation a little bit? Sure. Um, so I've been following um, the work from uh, Alex Oberwick and Peter Lytahall. Um, Alex is a math teacher in Ottawa, I think Ottawa. That's right. And Peter is, was at Simon Fraser University. And I believe that's Western Canada. Is that right? Am I making that I up? I think so. Yeah. Um, so they, they've been doing work for 2015 or 2000, even earlier, maybe. But I first saw Alex speak at NCTM in Boston. Um, so like he sort of, he talked about standing, sort of the, it was the thinking classroom before they called it the thinking classroom. It was more about standing whiteboards and randomized grouping, that whole idea. So I, the presentation I did uh, at NCTM this year was sort of about like how I took his like 13 or 15 different ideas. And I don't really, I can't focus on 15 things at once. I'm like a, I'm a micro guy. So like I focused on three or four 
at most. And that's sort of what I talked about in that thing. Like, how do I use these three or four ideas uh, in my math classroom, um, in my pre-calc honors classroom, if I'm teaching pre-calc honors? Um, because sometimes when you write a book that has an audience that's from like K through 12, it's hard to get specific uh, details. So like I wanted to talk about, hey, these details work for me in my classroom. And I've been trying things since 2015. And these things I've tried and these things that maybe don't work great for, for me. But, but um, so that's where I, I've come from. That talk sort of wrote down to the, the biggest thing for me was using standing whiteboards. So he calls it um, vertical non-permanent services. But standing whiteboards is really what it boils down to. Um, random grouping is, and those are the, the by far the most two important things. Standing whiteboards is where students are standing up in groups of two or three, um, and they're working on a problem together. The benefit that that helps, and then the team idea of it that really sort of brings in like the Ted Lasso idea is you have students working together in smaller groups. That's sort of like an offense or a defense or a, a pairing. But they're they're all working together as well. So they're not like uh, they're not taking their knowledge and writing a piece of paper and sort of like inward facing. They're sort of looking around and they're helping each other out. You'll see these groups just by by nature. They'll look around a little bit and look around the room and they'll say, "Oh," and they'll see, "Oh, John solved it that way." And they'll walk over to John and say, "Hey, how'd you do that step three? And then John gets to be the expert. And they John didn't feel like an expert that day. Maybe he doesn't feel like an expert in math class in general, but he got to feel like a little bit of an expert there because he's sharing his work and he sort of, he can help out other people. He can get through some pretty tricky algebra where Susan's having trouble. Set, she can set it up, no problem, but she's having trouble setting the algebra. Um, you see this all the time when it when gets to like exponential and logs. Sometimes kids can set this up. They can set the equation up, but they have trouble solving for X because they have trouble going from two, two forms or take the logable sides or that kind of right. stuff. Um, and John can be the expert at the algebra part, and Susan can be the expert at setting it up. So the second most important idea is random grouping. So the idea of random grouping is the students come in and they have random randomized groups, and it's truly random. I make a a small product, a big production in the beginning, but then a small production every time I randomize groups to, sh to verify that at least one kid sees that I have like the random button set when I'm shuffling the groups, because then they start to realize that we're in we're all in this together. Um, I'm not just in here with my friend. I might be grouped with my friend. That's very possible. But I'm with this with some random person. This person, I don't know yet. Maybe this person can help me out. And then as they go and they get random groups throughout the year, um, they, they're grouped with almost everybody, if not everybody. And they're able to see that this person, oh, yeah, this person uh, is really good at, like, organizing information. And so they'll you actually see them, uh, the students go around and help each other out with, students that they didn't have any idea who they were at the beginning of the year. It really helps at my school, at least. Uh, we have a pretty big school. It's like 850 in a class, uh, a graduating class. So they're literally possibly in the room with someone they've never been in the room with before. Um, right. So I make a big production of randomized groups. You have to introduce yourself. Um, so how it works best for me is like, I only do randomized groups once every two weeks. The book talks about doing it every day. That just got a little too busy for me. It just took up too much class time. And I like the idea that they're making a connection with a, with a person over a, a time. So they get to know that person a little bit. When I, when I stretched it past two weeks, uh, the students would complain. They would, um, <laughs> even if there's a group randomly with their friend, they'd be like, oh, Mr. Anderson, are we doing like new groups today? Cause it's been a while, even if they're with their friends, cause they, they sort of do look forward to that random, random groups as, as, as it goes.
and then you'll make some you get some really fun connections like i have sophomores juniors and seniors in my class and you'll have uh last year we had like there was a quieter sophomore boy and then there's like some like more gregarious seniors in that class and he sort of got to know a bunch of the seniors so much so that they he, i walked down the hallway one day when we didn't even have class and they like a bunch of seniors called him out and brought him over and they walked down the hallway with them. And that must have been felt really good as a sophomore yeah. to have like made a connection. So those are the two most important things I see as we go through, uh, as we, that I presented about Peter Lidehall taking classroom stuff. So it sounds like the buy-in from the learners is pretty solid. Yeah. So uh, about the random groups are the working on the whiteboards as well. It's huge. Um, so one thing I've been, I got from, I don't remember who, who did I steal? I stole it from somebody, stole the idea from somebody, of course. It was like a teacher report card. So a student feedback form at the end of every quarter. And so I, whenever I make a change, I like throw a question about the change in on that. And it's an anonymous feedback form. So the students are pretty honest with me about what's working, what's not. It's not a hundred percent of the students love whiteboards, but it's a way hyper. It's like 90 something percent in general. They come back we love the whiteboards. We like the standing. We like the this. We like the this. Um, and after I saw that, that's when I kept working with the whiteboards. Like I, I only sort of kept doing it after getting good feedback from the students. Same with the random grouping. Like originally, maybe I wouldn't be comfortable because when I first heard of random grouping, we all know as teachers, like there's definitely student A and student B. You don't want sitting next to each other. Like that's going to be a bad thing. <laughs> Put those two next to each other. It's going to be rough. And if you randomize it, you have no idea. You have no control over that. But it ended up not being that bad. And I've taught it. I've done random groups from like everyone from Algebra 1 all the way through uh, Calc. So it ended up not being as big of a deal as I thought. And students, some, so the students like the randomized grouping. And you'll, you'll see in the responses that they have on the feedback form. I like being paired up with different people because I didn't know that this person was good at this thing. And they, they come back and they're honest and they, they do prefer being grouped with a random person instead of being alphabetized or being, uh, you know, teacher selected groups or whatever it is. What would be challenging for somebody who kind of want to get, wanted to get started trying this? That's, that's a great question. The challenge in getting this started is probably getting whiteboards in your room. That's mostly the challenge. Like at the district I'm at right now, the administrators absolutely love it but there's red tape that happens since I, I like to change classrooms every year. It's a big lift to get a classroom with whiteboards around it. Even if the administrators like it, it's still a lot of red tape. They have to do this and an order ticket. So getting that going can be difficult. There are some ways to quickly get started. Um, there's shower board. You can get shower board at Lowe's or Home Depot for 12 bucks um, for a sheet and put that up. And that's great. A lot of times the hardest thing when you read, when you read his book and read his literature, it's like, Great. Awesome. He's got really cool problems. He's having these groups work on really fun problems. Like they're working on some really cool problem solving thing where they're trying to solve or like links in a gold chain. And they're trying to, but how do I teach like my curriculum? Because at the end of the day, at the end of the year, at the end of the quarter, I'm required to have a certain amount of things taught. And like that awesome, cool gold chain idea doesn't fit my curriculum at all. I have to teach about, I have to teach about rational functions. I have to teach about this. I have to teach about uh, complete the square. So how does, how does that fit in? So one of the things I presented about was like, here, here's what I do. I just have a present, I have a problems and problems up on the whiteboard and they just go for it. And then eventually I'll take some pictures of solutions and put that up. I'll take a picture with my tablet so they can, um, they can see that their work is being valued. But 
the hardest thing is like, how do I teach my curriculum this way? Teachers have trouble with how do I teach my curriculum? So like, we're just doing exponential log. So I, how do how do I do exponential log solving an exponential log equation? I put up four problems and say, go for it, have fun. Uh, let me know what you can get, where you can get stuck. And then you can walk around the room and see where they are. And so then, then the teacher's next step, that's the next part that gets stuck on. And so you're like, but if it's all on the whiteboards, what get, how, how do they learn from that? How are they going to write it all down? So another important step that I talked about in the presentation was like, how, meaningful note-taking. How do, you, how do you take notes? And so you really tap into their future self. You say, okay, sit down. Now that was your rough draft. You can sit down with your partner because I make sure they're sitting with their random partner as well. Copy. We did four or five problems. Whichever one you think is most important, put that in your notebook and like make sure it's nice and clean your solution. Because you might have made some mistakes in the whiteboard here and there. You, you, you've made some false starts. Uh, make sure the one that's in your notebook is all set. And then definitely talk through it with your neighbor to make sure that you understand what is happening at every step. And then a really important keyword to use is like your future forgetful self. What is your... What is what is uh, Dave in two weeks want to have in the notebook? What does David want to have? What's your future self want to have in the notebook so you can refer back to it in two weeks? That's some real metacognition going on there. Then teachers have problems with that. So teachers have problems like I used they used to have fifteen problems solved in their notebook at the end of this unit, and now they only have like four. Is that can be a problem? I don't think it is. I, I haven't seen that being a problem. A lot of students have that trouble too. Like they're the students that are really good at school. I get precoc honors kids. So they're kids that have like, school's been pretty straightforward for them. They know how to write that. If a teacher tells them to do something, they know how to write it carefully in a notebook, but very neat and like, and very, and then, so they get nervous about it too. Like, how am I not writing everything down? What if I need that stuff? So one way that helps me is like, I, I put a, so I put all my solutions in the tablet and that's automatically a PDF that they have access to. So they can always look back at the notes if they need to. Um, a lot of students have a lot of comfort with like taking a picture of their work on the whiteboard. Uh, they'll never look at that again, most likely. Like, <laughs> ever. But if it makes them comfortable, why not? Uh, I don't. I don't care. Um, and you'll that one fun thing about that too is sometimes when they get super proud of a of a long solution, they'll have their friend take a picture and they like they like <laughs> go in front of the picture, uh, which shows it's like it's sort of working for them. They like that idea. Uh, sometimes they'll sign it. You, I've definitely seen that in class where the students get proud. They'll sign it at the bottom and they'll, they'll purposely not erase it. So the next class can see that they've solved this problem. <laughs> that really gets at some of just the in, inherent value in problem solving, right? So if if they're invested, they're not, they're solving it themselves. They're not just carrying out steps somebody told them. They've got ownership. My favorite thing is it just happened uh, yesterday in class where students I asked them to solve a problem they've never seen before. It was like um, seven raised to the X equals eight raised to the X plus two. It's like an exponential function equals exponential function with different bases. So uh, the students came up with three different ways to solve it. It was fantastic. And we have never solved that before. They would get stuck. They'd try things. It's funny because like one corner of the room, sort of, they all sort of worked together. So it was like two or three groups sort of working together. Like they're talking. They're working in the groups of two, but they're also talking to each other. So that corner solved it one way. And then other corner solved it, solved it a different way because they had gotten a different starting spot from some student. I don't know who that student was. Um, and so they sort of, then they could share with each other. Here's how I solved it. Oh, I like that better. You know what? When I go to the notebook, I'm going to write your way because I like your way better. Or I, they're going to stay with their way. So have, tapping into their creativity is really a fun thing. Me personally, this semester, one of the classrooms I'm in, 
is like the ideal. It's got, you know, three full whiteboards on three walls. Mm. Uh, it even has a little rack of portable whiteboards. And awesome. a, another one has one tiny whiteboard in the front. And um, I haven't figured out to get a way to get more in. And, you know, so we'll get a couple student solutions going, but it, it has nowhere near that same energy of kind of them being able to see all the different ways that people are working on it. The standing is really important for that energy level. The room I'm in right now is like has windows to the hallway and there's one wall that I can't use for whiteboards. We don't have enough space for it. But if they have like 25, 26 students, I don't have enough space for all the groups of standing. Two groups have to be sitting and they're on these big whiteboards. So they're working together on big whiteboards, but not standing. So they're seated. And it's so much quieter with those groups than it is with the ones that are standing up. They're working well. They're working on math. And it's not like a problem per se. But they also get a little jealous. You'll see when they get assigned to that spot, they're like, oh, I was hoping I could stand sometimes, mm -hmm. um, which is fun. I love uh, that that kind of laboratory aspect, though, that you're getting to see kind of what's the difference, uh, even just with that one element removed. Yeah. We got lucky with COVID money. We have uh, the principal bought a bunch of like sort of portable, like rolly whiteboards that have two sides um, so i grabbed i snagged a bunch of those so i have like three of those in the room so that is really helpful so if you get some access to those that'd be great um i don't know if they have them somewhere on campus but they might we teach enough math classes in there i think that that would that would be worthwhile do you see i feel like you touched on this a bit when you were talking about kind of that diversity in the classroom but do you see a connection between this kind of uh, learner collaboration and equity in the classroom Absolutely. So equity in the classroom, a big thing about equity in the classroom is like valuing everybody as they walk in the room, valuing who they are as a person, uh, not asking them to uh, step farther or take bigger steps. It's like wherever they are, you want to meet them where they are. That's your equity. That's how I view equity in the classroom. And so this, this standing whiteboard is really nice for students because it can let them sort of fit the role that they want to be in. If they're sort of a student that likes to be a little bit more quiet, a little more introspective, they can. They, they can be in a group and be a little more quiet and introspective. They can sort of sit back and uh, ask questions. Or if they're a student that wants to be sort of more of a leader, they can sort of do that. They can, they can be more of a leader. I, I really think it, it can, it can, uh, they can appreciate as they walk in the room, I'm asking them, I'm just asking for the best version of themselves. I'm not asking for them to be someone different. I've definitely had like quieter students have success in the classroom because they're sort of, they might not even like, so they might be the people that don't really like working in groups in the beginning of the year. They don't see the value in it. A lot of times they, they eventually find the value. Sometimes they don't like they, you know, it's just sort of the, you didn't win over, you can't win over everybody. But some of those, sometimes those quieter students are the ones that sort of break out of the shell a little bit and can feel some confidence with math for the first time because they can share their ideas. Because a lot of times, they might be super brilliant on a piece of paper and then they're not, their classmates have no idea that they have really good ideas because they're just sort of quiet. They're sort of to themselves and they have great ideas on paper, but you don't see any of those ideas. But when it's up and standing, their ideas are shared. Um, there's nowhere for them to hide. And that's a scary aspect of it too, but it, it ends up being a really nice thing for a lot of them. Likewise, if, if students have big gaps in some of their knowledge, so sometimes, especially with COVID, you see, you see them coming in and they, they've one class got to trig and the other class didn't even touch trig or barely even talked about it, what it is. And we're trying to build on that in pre-calc. That's really tough for the teacher. But with randomized grouping, you can have students sort of be the, the, the expert, sort of an expert 
pair by accident. It's by accident. I'm not setting these expert pairs up, right. um, but you might have someone that knows a little bit more about trig, can help out the person that doesn't. And you'll you'll have them talk to each other, and they'll just by that, by by they, they'll find the person near them in a group that can help them the most. So that can help too. It's not. Not something that teachers haven't had to deal with before, but no. everybody's dealing with it now. Yeah, it's like it's, it's more extreme. There's a big, big, big variety, big variety of stuff happening in the classroom. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that um, you think would be good to share with people as they're thinking about this? Or I would try it out. You can try these these thinking classroom ideas. So if you have a classroom that, that works, um, you have the standing whiteboards. I feel like that's number one and groups are number two. Um, you can start off with those problems that uh, so sort of a thinking problem, a, a problem solving problem. You don't have to do curriculum stuff. You can start it off small. You can do once a week. We're doing a problem solving problem standing up and you can build in more curriculum problems. One really nice place that I just I do every day is a warm up question. So warm up questions uh, often like I used to give them on paper, I little slip of paper, then I collect them and then I, I don't know, I, I didn't. I really have time to look over all yeah. 30 papers or whatever it was. So I'd sort of get a gist, but with the thing classroom stuff, as they walk in the room, there's five warm-up problems on the board. Just go for it. And as they walk in, you can see, you can just, it's so much easier as a teacher to gauge where the class is, especially if you're going to build up on, you're going to build on those warm-up questions. I thought, I thought they knew how to solve those log equations, but it, it's clear that we need to talk about this again. We need to try some more problems before we move on. So warm-up questions is a really nice way to get them up and moving. They get up and talking. A lot of times kids are, I think at one another COVID thing is like, at least in our school, they're on the computers a ton for like two, three years straight, a ton of computer time. And so getting them up and moving can break them out of that sort of like small, small screen thinking where they're just sort of stuck in one little place. They can get up and move around. I like that a lot. And I love the vision of like, you're literally surrounded by your formative assessments. One really nice thing about them having to work with somebody else is they'll start uh, being more clear in their communication. So like I have a couple of students that are like really sloppy, like really hard to read their math. Uh, and they're starting to realize the value of like, if I just like spend a little bit longer and be a little bit more careful on how I'm writing these things, then my partner won't have to ask me every single step. Like, what did I mean by that? <laughs> is that a five or is that an S? So they, they do learn communication skills, like soft skills like that, which are Super important. Math is about communication. Like, it's not very useful if you just have the answer. I want to know why the answer is. I want uh, the communication aspect of this is really important to me. Well, cognitively, it's just something different happens between like you putting that problem on the paper and you seeing it and you having to explain it to somebody else. That's a whole transition. And yeah. I think there's there's so much more retention, the deeper understanding, that kind of trying to make sense of what somebody else is saying. Uh, there are just so many wonderful things going on there. And that's where that group size really helps. Like group size is a two of two. I've been doing two since COVID because we just had some spacing restrictions. Mm -hmm. Generally, I think three is the best, but a group size of two or three is not that scary for most teenagers to explain to. If you put a group size of 10 there and you have to talk to nine peers at once, that's a lot. Like that's a big jump. Yeah. Um, but if it's only a one or two people you're explaining to, it's not anywhere near as um, scary to them. So they, they can get comfortable with those small communication skills. And then you have, if you think about it, if there's one person explaining something to everybody and you have a class of 30, but there's 15 pairs, that's 15 people talking at once, 15 people thinking through instead of one or two people thinking through. Uh, there's one last question that I'm supposed to ask you here. 
first concert, best concert. <laughs> uh, first concert. So I think my first concert. So I was trying. I'm trying to remember. I'm pretty sure it's. Uh, I went there when I was 15. It was like the year my friend drove because he was 16. Uh, it was Goldfinger, The Y Store, and Fun Love and Criminals. And they were playing in Latham, New York. My favorite memory of that one is Fun Love and Criminals were playing. They had a song called Scooby Snacks. And I was like, that might have been the second yeah. song I played. In the middle of that song, they're playing the song. And they look up. And at the soundboard, their manager was getting in a fight with somebody. Oh. They dropped their instruments. <laughs> All ran up to join the fight. Concert over. So that was the end of the concert. Uh, that was my first concert. So that was pretty pretty entertaining. Uh, my favorite concert, I'm going to wimp out and choose two. My wife and I went on our honeymoon to Ireland. And like by accident, we were ending up finishing up in, in Dublin and flying out. And on that night, that our last night in Ireland, was U2 was playing. So we had to say U2 in Dublin, which was amazing. <laughs> wow. And Croke Stadium was like 80 or 100,000 people. It was just really, really great. Uh, and then four days later, we ended up back in New York and we went to uh, Coldplay. And Coldplay was doing the Viva La Vida tour at SPAC. And that concert was incredible. We were in the lawn because we didn't, we didn't have tickets for that one too. We just sort of showed up. And in the lawn, you, you have decent view, but it's really crowded. But in that concert, the band came all the way out and we saw like a little stage setting up and they played from six feet away uh, three songs. So they w went to that stage and we were six feet away from them playing their little <laughs> song. It was, it was a really, really fun set of concerts. That was like four days apart, those two concerts. Um, what a week. It was great. It was great. Yeah. Excellent. Well, um, thank you again, Dan, for being with us. I think it kind of inspiring and the scale of the effect that you're getting and kind of the smooth path you've made for people to be able to, to get started, to give it a go if they want. Well, thanks to, thanks to you, John, for having me. And thanks uh, Dave too. Um, you two are just, is a really fun podcast. Um, I love, I love the, the athletics and school connections. I see those connections all the time in the math classroom. I'm always talking about team sports and how coaching works and, when I'm coaching, I'm always talking about what I do in the classroom. So it's, it's a really nice connection. Oh, very good. It's great. Um, thanks so much. Thank you.